Ladies and gentlemen, and fellow golfers, for your entertainment. It's the Golf to Go Hour with Frank LaRosa, brought to you by the Hagen Oaks Golf Super Shop, America's most awarded golf facility. Nature Wood Home Furnishings, where it's all about choices and always about quality. Welcome in. This is the Golf to Go Radio Hour on Sacktown Sports 1140. I'm Frank LaRosa. My buddy Scott Marsh is there. And Scott, once again, we've got so much show packed in the hour coming up. We don't have time to talk about what we did or didn't do this week. Just get to it, Frank. Uh, we have uh, Peter Jacobson back to talk about the um, the uh, first tee invitational coming up at uh, El Paso Country Club and that uh, uh, uh We've got uh, John Shiro to talk about the uh, Brandenburg Historical Golf Museum at Cinnabar Hills. And uh, Jacques Lovell, chair of the Lovell Foundation, is here to talk about his tournament, the uh, the challenge, which has raised more than eight million dollars in its existence, it's it's. We, get, we bottom line is we got a lot of good stuff to talk about. We do. We'll keep it quiet and we'll get to the interviews. Sounds good. Back with more right after this. It's the Golf to Go Hour with Frank Larosa on Sacktown Sports. You're listening to the Golf to Go Radio Hour. This is Sacktown Sports 1140. I'm Frank Larosa, and our good friend Peter Jacobson is with us uh, back this week uh, to talk about. An exciting event that uh, the first tee Sacramento uh, is uh, is holding in October, October fifteenth uh, and sixteenth. It's called the First Tee Invitational with Peter Jacobson, and on Sunday, October fifteenth, uh, Peter will be at uh, the Del Paso Country Club for a VIP dinner, and Monday, October sixteenth, the eighteenth annual First Tee Invitational, uh, presented by Demon Partners at Catavadera Country Club. Peter, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for uh, everything you've done for golf and and uh, what you're going to do for First Tee Sacramento. Well, Frank, thank you. It's always great to be with you, and I'm so excited to come back to Sacramento and and have some fun with everybody involved with the First Tee. As you know, it is a it's a fantastic initiative and a very successful program. You know, this uh, as I mentioned, this is the 18th annual and. Uh, the Demon Partners, uh, Charlie and and Terry, whom you had a chance to meet uh, at uh, at the Langley a, a few weeks ago, are are so important uh, to this event. And the board of directors has kind of gotten together and said, uh, "We're going to step up our game." And in the last uh, couple three years, we've had Mr. Lee Trevino, we've had uh, Mr. Gary Player, and this year uh, for the 18th annual, it's Mr. Peter Jacobson. You're in you're in good company there. Well, I am in uh, great company. Whenever I'm with you, Frank, I am in high cotton. You know that. But, but Lee Trevino and Gary Player and everybody that's come, uh, been honored before me, is uh, we're all contributors to the game. And I would include you on that. We want to give back. We want to see the game of golf grow. We want to see more people play the game of golf. And through the game of golf, we have raised hundreds of millions of dollars. And on the PGA Tour, my organization, we've raised over $3 billion for communities in the cities where we play, for charities and, and the communities where we compete. So there's no game like the game of golf. You can't go play football with, with uh, Patrick Mahomes or Travis, Travis Kelsey. You can't go play basketball against Michael Jordan. But you can go play golf with Nick Faldo, Gary Player, and Lee Trevino and have a blast. Doesn't matter if you play well. Doesn't matter if you really don't know much about golf. But as long as you can just go out and have fun, raise money, and 
tell a few jokes along the way, then then it's all good. We, uh, as, as we mentioned, this is the uh, the first tease uh, of fundraiser. And I think the first tee over the years has been a little hard to describe to some people. Uh, and at first blush, it looks like, well, that's a program that teaches kids to play golf. Well, maybe that's true. Uh, and they do learn to play golf, but they learn golf as a result of, of, of this youth development program. And first and foremost, that's where it starts. And, and golf is kind of the vehicle that gets them there. What do you what do you think about uh, that approach, and and what's your reaction to what the first tee has done over the years? The first tee program, as you mentioned, was really started to teach golf to get to get into the underserved, underprivileged communities in the uh, in the parts of the uh, the the cities we live to bring them out and to teach them to play golf, to give them a golf club, learn about the golf swing, and get them on the golf course. But I think. The most important part of the first tee are the nine core values. Those nine core values, and I can't remember all nine of them, but they're integrity, honesty, sportsmanship. Those are the uh, the nine core values, the, the way we should live our lives. Uh, not just play on the golf course. It's how we should live our lives, treat others with respect, show kindness, show gratitude, be re- reliant, self-reliant on yourself. And I think that has really been the overreaching uh, result of what the first tee has done because do kids go on to play golf? Yeah, a lot of them do. Some of them don't. But I think what they learn, those important life values, what they learn through the first tee and the game of golf is what they carry with them the rest of their lives. You know, Peter, every time I hear the number or say the number, I'm I'm totally uh, mystified that that it's it's possible. But First Tee Greater Sacramento affects the lives of over 50,000 juniors every year. That's an incredible number. It's amazing. As we said, I think this started somewhere around 30 years ago. It was a initiative by the PGA Tour Commissioner and President George George Bush. And they just wanted to get more kids to play golf. And this has mushroomed now into an incredible fundraising initiative uh, as well as a as a youth development program. And let's not forget, it's also good for the parents. The parents have a chance to get out. They take their 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 children to these events and they meet other adults. And then they play they play golf together. And I'm biased, as I said. The more people we get to play golf, the more kids we get to play golf, the better, the the brighter our future is. You know, when Tiger came on the scene, the the, the game of golf mushroomed, but it, it mushroomed more with people watching golf on television. The pandemic uh, certainly was, uh, you know, was a was a big bruise uh, in, in our world. But what it did for the game of golf as a result of it was was incredible. And it, it just seems to me that that those people are staying with the game and and friends are saying, gee, that looks like fun. And and the growth is just phenomenal at this point. I think when people started realizing through the pandemic that they can get outside, they can play golf, uh, contact sports were, were something that was was uh, uh, not allowed. Uh, being inside was, everybody wanted to be inside, but I think people got, they went stir crazy. So when they went out and they discovered the game of golf, the game of golf boomed during the pandemic, and it's still booming. 
in the industry that I'm involved with, not only club manufacturing, but golf balls, shoes, apparel, teaching lessons, and these golf facilities that are popping up around the country, driving ranges, the technology boom with launch monitors and and all the video. It, it, it's, it's just amazing to me how all of these clubs are updating their practice facilities and their golf and their golf courses. And that's all due to the love of the game. And as you pointed out, it's hard to look elsewhere than the pandemic because the game of golf before the pandemic was maybe, maybe waning a bit. The interest in golf was waning, even with the excitement of Tiger Woods, but now it is, um, it is on an uphill climb and hopefully there's no end in sight. Peter, you've uh, you've spent many years as a as a commentator and uh, broadcaster, both with Golf Channel and and NBC. You've you've been at uh, you, you know at, at at the majors. You've been at the uh, Ryder Cup. You've you've been at the the celebrity tournament in Tahoe. Is there one that kind of jumps out at you that you look forward to every year, and you think, boy, this is going to be fun? Well, I will say this: the one event you just mentioned, the American Century Championship in Tahoe the celebrity event, that is one of the most exciting events because I'm a sports fan and you've got football, baseball, basketball, actors, singers, everybody from all walks of life, which again validates the point about everybody loves to play golf. And especially this year when Steph Curry made that eagle putt on the last hole to win, he made a hole in one on the second day. The fans come out because the players, the athletes are so great, whether it's Patrick Mahomes, uh, Travis Kelsey, Justin Timberlake, Charles Barkley, Steph Curry, Tony Romo. They give to the fans because they're doing something that's totally out of their element. They're playing golf. They know they're not golf pros, but they want to emulate a golf pro. They want to play as uh, the best they possibly can. So that American century has, has really has grown into one of the most exciting events. But, Frank, to me, I've played in the Ryder Cup. I've played in two Ryder Cups, in fact. And I've covered probably four Ryder Cups for NBC. That, to me, is still the most spellbinding, exciting event to, to, to compete in and to watch and to broadcast because things change so quickly. Momentum shifts. You can see the putts going in for the United States, and then all of a sudden – that they stop going in and the Europeans start making putts. So the scores and the, the, the momentum changes. The Ryder Cup to me is one of the most exciting events in, in sport, not just the game of golf, but in sport. And along with that, you've got the Solime Cup on the LPGA Tour and the President's Cup with the PGA Tour and the International. There's something about match play, mano a mano, that uh, seems to catch everybody's attention, and it certainly does mine. And the handicap system, uh, for people that are not familiar with the game, allows me, you know, as a as a double-digit handicapper, to, to play with you on, on a somewhat level basis. Now, if we go out and play, I don't think either one of us are concerned about who wins. We're going to spend some time and and laugh and, and have, a, have a good day, but... But the the notion of our handicap system in in the game of golf 
puts everybody on a on an equal footing and and we get we get to compete on an equal basis again the beauty of the game of golf you could take you could take rory mcelroy who is one of the best players in the world me not one of the best players in the world but still a pro you and a total beginner and based on our handicap by the end of the day uh the beginner or 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 any of the four of us could win we could say hey i beat rory mcelroy now yeah rory had to give me two, three, four, 10, 12 shots, whatever it may be. But that's the great equalizer in the game of golf. We get to play the same hole, maybe from different tees, maybe with a little different stroke handicap. But when we put out on the 18th, we all shake hands. We all have a great time. We can go in and have a couple of pops at lunch and maybe a, 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 a great cheeseburger and everybody leaves completely happy. <laughs> You know, I don't want to give away too much uh, about uh, what you're going to do on stage when you come here for the first invitational, but but you are a storyteller, and uh, you know, I, I one of my favorite stories with you, and and uh, you know, I, I don't think we're giving away too much to do this. Is you 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 mentioned uh, the first tournament you played as a professional was the AT and T, and you had a little a little uh, encounter with uh, with Mr. Arnold Palmer, which I find fascinating and i've always thought that was that was just a, a great story well they always say make sure uh, w you don't really want to meet your heroes because they can disappoint you when in this situation he completely overwhelmed me i qualified on monday at old del monte for the 18 team my first pga tour event ever 1977 and i ran out to monterey peninsula country club one of the courses in the rotation and I played a few holes on the back nine. I was just so excited. I had to get out there. And the sun was setting in the Pacific, and I knew I had to get in. So I cut across the golf course from, I think, 12 to 16, hit a few tee shots, and I turned around to look behind me, and around the corner came this group. And I thought, oh, I just cut in front of a group. Well, that group happened to be Arnold Palmer <laughs> and a couple of players that he was playing with. I stood to the side. My caddy had my bag there. My name was uh, emboldened, emblazoned on that bag. And I thought, oh, no, I've just cut in front of Arnold. What's going to happen? He walked right up to me, stuck out his big hand, and he said, hi, I'm Arnold Palmer. Can we join you? <laughs> now, that absolutely blew me away because he could have big time me and said, young man, step out of the way we're playing through. Don't you ever cut in front of people. He made me feel like an equal. He brought me in. We played three holes to the clubhouse, and that was the first time I met Arnold. And we ended up having a, uh, as everybody did that met Arnold. Arnold never met anybody that wasn't didn't feel like a great friend. So uh, that was an amazing time, especially on my first day as an official PGA <laughs> Tour player. Well, and 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 years later, uh, you know, especially after the passing of Arnold, you've done. Uh, more than more than most in 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 terms of uh, keeping that kind of uh, uh, you know Arnold Palmerism, I guess uh, you know a smile and a handshake and let everybody know that they are important and and you've certainly done that throughout your career and the first time I met you you were the same way uh, with me as as Arnold Palmer was with you so we appreciate all you've been Peter and uh, you know uh, the, the the golf world. 
uh, is a better place having you in it. Well, you're very kind to say that, Frank. I, I remember Arnold, whenever we played together in exhibitions or in pro-ams or, or, or practice rounds, he always made sure to engage with somebody that he wouldn't normally meet on the golf course. So it might've been a marshal, it might've been a spectator or a fan. He'd say, hey, come over here, let's go talk to these people. And it might be a practice round for the Bob Hope Classic. Nobody expects Arnold Palmer to walk over to you while you're while you're munching on a hot dog, drinking a beer. But Arnold, we would walk over there and Arnold would say, hey, how are you? How you doing? You enjoying yourself? And that person would have an experience he would never forget. And that just Arnold just wanted everybody to know how much he appreciated their attending this golf championship, which many times he would go on to win. But <laughs> he just wanted he wanted uh, to be a good representative of the PGA Tour and that that week's tour event. Well, Peter Jacobson, we appreciate the gift you've given us and look forward to uh, seeing you at the First Sea Invitational with Peter Jacobson uh, Sunday, October 15th at uh, Del Paso Country Club, a VIP uh, dinner, and uh, Monday, October 16th at uh, the uh, Calavadera Country Club, uh, the First Sea Invitational presented by Demon Partners. Uh, though You've heard Peter's stories. He's got a lot of them. Uh, I'd, I'd take a look at uh, the first tee, sacramento.org and see how you can be involved in this event. Peter, thank you so much uh, for, uh, again, as I said, everything you've done for the game, uh, your friendship to me, and we look forward to seeing you uh, in October. Thank you, Frank. Always great to be with you. Peter Jacobson, this is the Golf to Go Radio Hour, back with more right after this. It's the Golf to Go Hour with Frank LaRosa on Sacktown Sports. Welcome back in. You're listening to the Golf to Go Radio Hour here on Sacktown Sports 1140. I'm Frank LaRosa. He's Scott Marsh. And Scott, uh, an old friend of mine, John Shiro, uh, is the um, curator for the Brandenburg Historical Golf Museum. And I'm sure it's uh, a museum that uh, few have heard about, uh, especially up our way, but it's really someplace you need to go by. Uh, the the museum is at uh, Cinnabar Hills Golf Course. John, how are you? Nice to have you on the show. Frank, thank you. I'm fine. Uh, good to hear from you. You know, John uh, spent a, a number of years in the golf industry as a sales rep and um, had decided that, uh, you know, like the fortunate people in life, he didn't need to work anymore. So so he, uh, and it's your, it's your son that's at, at Cinnabar, correct? Yeah, Frank, actually, uh, Adam has been there. Uh, Cinnabar actually celebrated their 25th year last Tuesday. And Adam's been there the whole 25 years. He's now general manager, worked for uh, the Brandenburgs that whole time. And uh, that's how the the museum was founded by Lee's collection, putting it into the golf uh, into the golf course. Lee Brandenburg was uh, was quite a figure in the in the in the golf world. Can you again give us kind of a brief uh, uh, description of who Lee was? Sure, sure. Quickly. Um, Lee was a developer in the Bay Area, mobile home parks, and he had an he had an avid interest in golf, uh, in fire equipment and in the military, all three areas. He started collecting golf uh, memorabilia way when he was a lot younger, when he got uh, got into the business, became profitable. And he had this collection. And once uh, he started buying these special things, he decided to put that a museum into the golf course that he built in 1998, actually. And uh, it's been there ever since. It continued to grow while Lee was alive. Lee and I were friends since 65. Um, 
in 70, or uh, sorry, in uh, 2017, he passed away at 87. So he had a really good life. But two years before we were having lunch and he said, John, I'm making you curated since you retired from golf. And so now it's turned into my museum, but Lee was very eccentric, uh, really loved golf. Uh, wasn't a great player to his own admission, but he truly loved it. And certainly the uh, the museum, uh, among other things, um, are are his legacy. And you you kind of walk in the doors of 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 that room, and and you wander around the outside of the room, and it's just filled with uh, with glass cases with all kinds of memorabilia. Uh, John, what do you think is 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 your most interesting piece there? Well, uh, Frank, we we have four or five, maybe six, really novel. Well major pieces. Our biggest piece, which unfortunately we've taken out of the museum because of its value, is that Lee acquired uh, President Eisenhower's Augusta jacket. Wow. And as most jackets, well, as all jackets from Augusta are not supposed to be off the premises, this is a number of years ago. And it's become so valuable that we we only have pictures of it now. We have a kind of a replica jacket. But we also have Walter Hagen's Ryder Cup jacket. Uh, the first Ryder Cup was in 1927. Walter Hagen was a player uh, and uh, coach, and so he, and captain, and he had it for four years. Uh, that jacket is in there. We have uh, Al Guyberger's 59 clubs when he shot 59 in, in Palm Desert. Uh, we have Chip Beck's 59 clubs. But what I what I really like about the museum, Frank, is that it has, as you were commenting, a number of pieces. But I like the little things, the parking passes from 1955 uh, Olympic Club, U.S. Open, the uh, letters to different people, letters, Bobby Jones letters, original Bobby Jones letters to the Royal and Ancient uh, from Augusta. Uh, we have all of the replicas of the four major championships, Lee Batos in 2003. To be perfectly honest, I was in the industry and thought that we would get more static from Augusta and the USGA. And we did get some static from the USGA. And we have a letter that's printed up on the wall saying that we couldn't do it. But he has all four replicas. We have a replica of the Ryder Cup and we have a replica of the U.S. Amateur. Full size. Yeah. And and that was my first association because Lee uh, invited uh, about twenty media to come down and play with people that won those turn uh, those trophies: Tony Jacklin, Bob Rosberg, Billy Casper, Doug Sanders, and I think Bob Colby may have been the fifth. I and played I got, with Bob Colby, so he was. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I got to play with Billy Casper, and what a great day that was! And to introduce those trophies, it. I mean, you really felt like you were you were part of something bigger than, uh, you know, the uh, kind of a, a a taste of of what those tour players go through. Yeah, they were all they were all five friends of Lee's, and uh, it was a really good day. It was a fun day, uh, as as you said, it was a special day. I was always nervous, though, that you know we would get too much media attention because uh, I always felt that we would get some feedback or kickback, but we haven't, <laughs> and. Uh, so they still out, they're still out on display, and the only unfortunate thing about them is I have to polish them about once a year. <laughs> my favorite part of the day, I, I want to get Scott in here, but my favorite part of the day was, as I remember, Lee offered uh, some money for them to uh, to play a tournament, and they all said, 
no, at this point, well, let's just split the money. <laughs> yeah, I, you're exactly right. That's, that's funny because that's exactly what happened. You have a good memory. Scott, I don't know that you've had a chance to to get down to Cinnabar Hill so to see the see the museum, but uh, but I know you'd you'd uh, be thrilled with some of the things you'd run into there. I would love to get down there, and obviously, I'd love to play that course too. It's one of the best courses in California, so let's not forget about that as well. It's a great trip to to do all of that, John. Um, you mentioned the parking pass that has personal interest to me that 55 open one of my great experiences just uh, being able to play in some some golf tournaments was I was paired up with Jack Fleck um, up at the senior challenge one year for the Charles Schwab Cup up, up at Sonoma and of course his legendary story of coming back and beating Ben Hogan at the Olympic Club was one of the great stories in all of golf so just little artifacts like that to me are just so interesting and exciting and I think would have such great interest for so many people. Well, Scott, I'll, I'll I'll go one step further. Anytime you want to come down, not only will I give you a personal tour, I'll go out and play golf with you at, with you at Cinnabar. I can make that happen. Okay, from a different different perspective. And then the Jack Fleck comment that's very interesting because in his later years, Lee and Jack Fleck became very close, and we have a lot of memorabilia from Jack Fleck. I put yeah. it in the museum. Not everybody remembers Jack Fleck as you do, but um, so they, he has his own little spot in the museum, too. That's awesome. You know, when the U.S. Open came back to Olympic Club in 2012, Bob Costas did a great feature on his comeback with Jack Fleck that was so memorable. And uh, just to, to meet him at 80 plus years old, hitting at 200 yards and straight every time was, was something I'll never forget. Yeah, well, you know, Jack Fleck actually was the golf pro up above you guys up at Peachtree. Was he really? Yes, years ago, yes. Wow, I did not know that. That's great. That's a great course up in Marysville, Yuba City. The things yeah. you learn when you just ask questions. Yeah. Uh, you know, over the course of the years, the golf writers used to have a great dinner every year and uh, invite, oh, you know, some some luminaries. And um, uh, over the years, that that uh, tradition has gone away. And, and Lee, you've done something great to kind of keep people involved. It's called a social gathering of golf and this is your second year of doing it and uh, we appreciate so much your willingness to get people in the golf world together uh, you know just to, to kind of shake hands and 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 tell stories and lie to each other about some things so uh, you know if people in the golf world are listening to this and and uh, want to know more about it they can certainly contact you at uh, Cinnabar Hills but Lee give us uh, an idea of where Cinnabar Hills is and uh, how people can get there and what are the hours of the museum? Okay Frank well uh, the, the museum is open as long as Cinnabar is open so uh, if, if you're playing golf there uh, the museum's in between the pro shop and the banquet so it, you walk right through it. It's in, it's in the south part of San Jose it's, it's, uh, there's, no, there's no homes around Cinnabar as Scott was saying it's it's a really good test of golf, 27 holes. Uh, so there's three different nines. Uh, it's open to the public, privately owned by the Brandenburg family and open to the public. Uh, and so uh, the museum exists at, at any time that you'd like to come through. Sometimes I'll, I'll get a group and, and walk them through for a little bit more history, but I try to do signage in the museum. So most of it is, is there. Uh, you can spend an hour, you can spend two hours, you can spend 10 minutes, but once you spend 10 minutes, you know you're coming back. Um, so that's kind of where we're at. It's right off Highway 101, headed south just past San Jose. Or if you're coming in San Jose, it's just the south part of San Jose, right off Bailey Road. 
And as a, as a member of the California Golf Writers, thank you to you and the museum for for having a little uh, portion uh, commemorating the folks that have been members of the uh, California Golf Hall of Fame and and what the California Golf Writers have done over the years as well. Well, thank you. Uh, it kind of goes in and out. I try to freshen up the displays, move them around. Uh, Lee has has had enough memorabilia that I have a storage room, and and I have to admit this this moment, Frank, that the Golf Writers exhibit is now in storage, but it'll be back out. Uh, they were, you know, a founding part of golf that we really missed. That's part of the gathering. People like you and I remember the good, the really, really good times of golf. I mean, they're they're great now, but they were even better 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Lee, I'm not sorry. Uh, John, I'm not so sure that's a problem because many of the golf writers are in storage as well. So <laughs> we all, so are all headed to storage, Frank. We're all headed to storage. <laughs> Thank you so much, John Shiro, and uh, a look into the um, the Brandenburg Historical Golf Museum and a curator, uh, John Shiro. Appreciate you spending some time with us today. Well, thank you. And the two of you are welcome anytime. Come together, come separate. I would love to uh, both show you the facility more and get you out on the golf course. Thank you, John. That's John Shiro. This is the golf to go Radio Hour. We'll be back with uh, Jacques uh, Laval right after this. Yeah. It's the golf to go Hour with Frank LaRosa on Sacktown Sports. You are listening to the golf to go Radio Hour here on Sacktown Sports 1140. Hi, I'm Frank LaRosa, Scott Marks beside, and uh, we'd like to welcome in Jacques Laval. Jacques is the chair of the Laval Foundation and uh, We've uh, when when you th when you think about how this all kind of happened, it's it's amazing what can happen on a golf course. Because 14, 15 years ago, I was playing in a tournament with Frank and Mary Lou Dininger, your tournament director, and um, and Frank said, "Hey, why don't you come in and take a look at our tournament?" And here we are, I don't know, 14, 15 years later, and and Jacques Laval as uh, as the chair of the Laval Foundation and. Um, I, Jacques, what you've done just continues to amaze me. I just, uh, I am blown away by your foundation. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Frank. Uh, first of all, uh, I appreciate you saying what I've done, but it, it really isn't, isn't me. It's a, uh, it's a, a community of people that have come together to accomplish what we've accomplished. But uh, thanks, thanks for the, the uh, recognition. I appreciate it. Absolutely. The, the Love All Foundation uh, has, has a really great backstory. Why don't you tell us what it is and, and how it came to be? Well, it actually uh, uh, started as a tribute to my late father and my mother. The uh, uh, organization that uh, my father represented uh, got, got together when you know, we used to get together every year and, and put together donations to get a Christmas gift and uh, anyway and I was charged with uh, with finding the gift and and we had uh, raised uh, just over a thousand dollars you know with the staff uh, to to go find a gift so my wife and I went out and uh, yeah bottom line is we we determined that uh, you know they're they're fortunate they, they kind of really didn't need anything uh, so it occurred to us that it would be really nice to maybe start a charity uh, in their name uh, to support kids. They uh, had seven kids of their own, uh, and their house was always kind of a community center. There's a lot of a lot of kids that considered themselves uh, pseudo adopted by by Jack and Patty. So uh, we we started a, uh, a a foundation 
uh, to benefit children. And uh, the first, uh, so the Christmas party, that's where we announced it. And the, uh, the reaction to it was, was overwhelming. Uh, the people that stepped forward and said that they would help with virtually everything from, you know, legal, uh, you know, legally putting the organization together, uh, communications, uh, accounting, whatever it took, people came forward. Uh, and the next, uh, next thing, you know, uh, we were seeking for a way to, you know, raise some money. So we started a golf tournament and we call the golf tournament, the challenge. And, and anyway, here we are, uh, 20, this will be the 24th, uh, we call our golf tournament, the challenge, and this will be the, the, uh, 24th and, uh, we're going to break uh, $8 million uh, that we've raised uh, in, over those years. And uh, so it's been, it's been a kind of a, a humbling and an astonishing ride uh, to see just uh, what people will do when you, you call on their better, their better angels. It's really been remarkable. I mean, it really is a remarkable story. First of all, that you, you would come up with the idea and, uh, you know, and that your parents would uh, would think it's also a great idea. And for everybody to just kind of jump in, you know, there when volunteers uh, sometimes get involved early, there's a lot of promises and, and you know, some follow through and some don't. But uh, but the group that has has been with you uh, all these years is, is just remarkable. And when you think about what the what the foundation does, you know, providing opportunities for children to live better lives and help them reach their full potential, I mean, that who 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 can who can find fault with that? And uh, you know that that's got to give you a warm feeling, not only that this has all happened, but you're actually doing something and, and helping some folks that need it. Well, you you know, I'm really glad that you you mention the volunteers that step forward and sometimes they follow through and sometimes they don't because the real uh heroes in this whole whole uh endeavor are the people that volunteer i mean it is astonishing uh the commitment that they demonstrated of, to to doing any all of the events uh that we do uh the, the folks who go out there and are regularly uh working with uh community organizations uh, the folks who are identifying kids that are in need, the, the folks who are who have affiliated with us as volunteers are absolutely phenomenal. I am in awe of what they do. And and uh, to say nothing of the incredible generosity that people are, have uh, demonstrated financially. Uh, but but in terms of uh, their commitment from a from a time perspective and from a uh, you know just the energy they bring the ideas uh identifying places we can help going out and, and doing the legwork to to actually follow through on the different things it, it really is about the it really is about the volunteers it really is and uh, uh so thanks for for bringing them up your your charity has um, has helped not only folks uh, in our Northern California area, but uh, you have some worldwide ties, and and to be able to take on that kind of a, a commitment is you know just sort of expands. Um, I'm guessing when 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 you decided to put the foundation together, you had no idea the people you would reach. <laughs> I have to say uh, that that has been. Uh... 
that has been a, a really a part of the the journey that's been interesting is uh, you know really the first time we got outside of uh, northern california was immediate and was really right at the onset of uh reaching out beyond the borders of northern california was right after the uh the 911 uh, uh tragedy and uh, you know, why everyone was kind of uh, marshalling their forces on what they were going to do for those folks. We were able to, we, we actually have a lot of folks who support us that are out of the financial uh, industries and, and obviously have headquarters in, in, uh, in, uh, in New York. So uh, we went and immediately before anyone else really could get come to their aid, we, we came to the aid of uh, the families of the workers that were killed at the, that worked in the, uh, uh, the window to the world uh, restaurant at the top of the towers. And we, we went back and really were the first on the ground to, to, to help to support those people who are really living paycheck to paycheck and they lost their breadwinner. And we went back and, and that was an astonishing experience for everyone involved. Uh, so it you know, then it occurred to us that, you know, hey, look, we don't have to limit our our uh, efforts, you know, necessarily to Northern California, wherever wherever the the need arises, we'll go there. And and our supports from all over the country. We've done a lot of stuff with the folks in, with people in Chicago. Uh, we we do a lot of work with the with the boys and girls girls clubs of Chicago. Uh, we've done uh, a lot of work in Los Angeles with the youth organizations there. You know, they, there's various parts of the country where are really stepped up from. Uh, so we like to give back to the areas that, that have supported us as well. And, and we, we always point out that, you know, kids who need help don't have marketing departments, right? <laughs> they, it, <laughs> so you got to keep your eyes open. Uh, it's really the people that need the most help are the people that are least likely to be able to ask for it or, or even know who to ask or have the connections to get the kind of resources that they need. And that's the thing that uh, we're proud of is that uh, if there's if there's if there's a, a situation uh, that merits help, we have never not been able to help. We're, period. If there's a situation where where people need immediate on hands-on assistance uh we can get it done and uh and that's that's a remarkably uh rewarding thing to to be able to say and and to be able to do uh we've we've been uh we've been you know uh we've identified things where uh you know we we relieved a lot of a lot of suffering and created a lot of opportunities that otherwise would have fell through the cracks and uh, and I think that's pretty cool. That's very cool. We're talking with Jacques Lovell, the uh, foundation chair of the Lovell Foundation. Scott, you know, I've I've mentioned this uh, this tournament, the challenge to you a number of times. And uh, when you listen to Jacques uh, talk about uh, what the money does, it's it, it golf has just been so great uh, forever in terms of uh, of charity dollars, but uh, to to know that they've raised more than eight million dollars in this tournament uh, right here in in Northern California is uh, it, it's really heartwarming. It is mind-boggling, heartwarming. Um, Jock, thank you for all you're doing for our community and for somebody else. It's such a it's such a great story to to bring to light. And I know you've been doing it for such a long time. 
Um, I know that you're really involved with the, the situation in Maui right now. And of course, everything yeah. that's going on in Ukraine as well. I'm really yeah. interested to find out how, and I understand more so the situation with Maui, but maybe you can explain in Ukraine how you're able to, with all the money you raise, channel it and, and make sure it gets to where you want to get it. Well, that's uh, the Ukraine story uh, is kind of twofold. Um, one is one of our, you know, associates that that we've done business with for for a long for a long time. He decided that a vacation of all things uh, to take his teenage daughters to would be to go to Poland to visit the refugee centers for Ukraine. Talk about an enlightened parent, right? Who who wants to to, to you know, teach his children uh, to look outside themselves. Well, he did. Uh, he and his wife took their two daughters to uh, Poland, and they were working with the uh, 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 welcoming the refugees into into Poland. And uh, astonishing, you know, the, the what they did there. Uh, and it was just train after train that was coming into Poland with people that all they had was, you know. The backpack on their back and nothing else fleeing fleeing their lives for their lives and and so you know a lot of strain on on uh poland and, and bless them for uh poland for opening their borders with open arms to welcome those folks in so anyway they, they explained to us the 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 organizations which were mostly made up of of you know women that in 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 the towns where the trains were coming in that were just trying to pull together anything they could to welcome these, these folks as they got off the, off the train and, you know, anything, I mean, they were, it was, you know, anything from diapers, teddy bears, juice boxes, whatever it took. Um, and then the, the idea was that uh, they wanted to make them feel welcome and they wanted to be, be able to get them as as many resources as they possibly could as quickly as they could uh so through mark bloom and uh his relationships that he had developed while he was there we we started a a, a network of folks that we work with there uh, on an ongoing basis uh the account there's an, a very strict accounting uh you know we send the resources they send us the accounting of exactly what the stuff's being spent for and send us lots of videos and pictures and 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 we continue to support uh support that group uh those groups and then the other piece of it is a local ukrainian american family uh here in sacramento uh the smolens and uh they have uh i mean my they tore my heart out uh to to have a uh, uh facetime with uh uh, with uh, Peter Smolin about what was going on as their country was being torn apart. Uh, I mean, this is a very, very, very tough, tough guy being reduced to, uh, you know, just being devastated. Uh, so we, and and they're doing everything in their power to, to I mean, they were, he, you know, he and his brother and his wife and their wives were, went back to Ukraine and were doing everything they could to ferry people out of the danger zones and get them out of the, out of the country. And uh, so we've uh, supported them uh, to keep continue that effort. And uh, they uh, they actually have, uh, they call it Smolin Ministries, and they've been uh, just 
just remarkably uh, generous, courageous, and 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 what they've done uh, to establish uh, places of refuge there. Uh, once again, uh, in Poland, uh, where these kids can come and uh, and feel some degree of uh, uh, you know, security is is remarkable. So I I got to give a shout out to them. So. Yeah, it is, re- it is remarkable. And I'm not sure if everybody's aware of this, but we have a large Ukrainian population in our area here in the Sacramento region. We, we sure do. It's it's a, it's really, I mean, if if Sacramento isn't a, a, a sister city uh, to uh, a Ukrainian city, I don't know, know what city is. Uh, we do have, uh, I mean, I think everyone in this country has an obligation to support uh, the resistance that the Ukrainians have shown and, and support them any way we can. But but Sacramento, I think, really specifically is a, is a city that has uh, got a real, really strong, uh, vibrant uh, uh, Ukrainian uh, community, which my, my experience has been unbelievably hardworking uh, and uh, honorable, uh, you know, great people. We've talked about the need. We've talked about how uh, the Lovell Foundation is fulfilling it. How how can others help you, Jacques? What uh, what can our listeners do? Well, look, uh, you could just jump on to lovellfoundation.org, uh, and you can, if if you want to make a contribution, that would be incredible. And when I say a contribution, anything that you want to do is a contribution, whether you want to. Uh, you know, give financially, obviously that's terrific. If you can, uh, offer your time, uh, that's wonderful. If you, if there's someone who's, uh, if you know a situation that you think, uh, warrants, uh, some, some aid, let us know. Uh, if you're, uh, if you're interested in developing, uh, a program or a project that needs some support, let us know, uh, you know, anyway, uh, that we can help facilitate. At this point, we've had a lot of experience with putting together uh, different programs uh, and help. So if if you're if you, the spirit moves you to to help in any way, just reach out to us and and we we will help you one way or another. We'll figure out a way. And uh, you know it's uh, there's you know th- some things start out small and wind up huge. And uh, you know I think uh, one of my one of my heroes is uh, Danny Thomas, who uh, who was really behind, the, yeah, who was really behind the uh, uh, Shriners Hospital. Which, yeah. if that isn't a, if that isn't uh, a guaranteed one way ticket to being a, a saint, I don't know what is. What <laughs> happened there? I mean that that it's just phenomenal. Uh, so, you know, and that's just you know. A, a kernel of an idea and now the the relief it gives to people to kids and families that that uh you know i i just find that organization remarkable and you know there's just different what i what i've discovered is that people are great people are great people want to help people uh it makes them feel good to help uh you know i i don't want to get uh, you know, too corny, but go back and watch, uh, you know, the, the, the life of, uh, like Fred Rogers, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are people that, that just had 
enormous hearts uh, and 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 taught people to care for one another. And uh, I can tell you uh, that is the definition of uh, what my parents, uh, what my father was, what my mother is. And that's really what motivated the whole thing. That, that's a blessing. And I can tell you, I've been back to Memphis for, for St. Jude's with Danny Thomas. And you go back there and you, you see the kids and like the God's work that they're doing. It's, it's, uh, I wish everybody could have that it's experience up front. It is. It's amazing. You know, yeah, you, see, you know what? I wish everybody could have them have those kind of experiences also because yeah. uh, it's what really brings out the best in us. You know, no doubt. It really is. You, you see that sense of joy too in, in, in the people that come to play in your golf tournament. Uh, they, they are, are out for a, a day. Unlike any other, uh, your golf tournament is hard to describe. It's, it's so much fun <laughs> and so challenging, yeah. but, but down deep, they know that they're doing some, something really good. And uh, they know that, uh, what the Love All Foundation does is is worth supporting. So um, hats off to you, Jacques, and your team. Well, Frank, I appreciate it. And, and the, the, I do have to say, our tournament is a lot of fun. There's no it's, question it's, about it. I always say it's a uh, it's a party with intermittent golf shots. <laughs> Jacques Lovell, he's the chair of the Love All Foundation. Thank you to all our guests once again on the Golf to Go Radio Hour, the fastest hour in uh, sports. That's what uh, Scott Marsh calls it, and I can't argue with him. We're back with more next week. Uh, thank you to our guests, uh, Peter Jacobson, uh, John Shiro, and uh, Jacques Lovell. <laughs>